Greetings to you all and welcome to Back to Ashes. My name is Phoenix. If you are new to the channel or haven't done so yet, please don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and comment. Not only does it help the channel out, but it also reminds you of every time I upload. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For once we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and a happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab your snacks, or tuck in to get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled Friday the 13th Part 2. Right after this intro and ad will play, I'll read the first story and ad will play, and after that there will be no more ads within this video. For anyone that has not read my community tab, I will be reading horror stories that are fiction, and I will be reading them in the raw. If you are uncomfortable with vulgar language or anything of the sort, this will not be the video for you. This is the only time of year that I will read an author's work in the raw, because it brings more character to the story. With all of that being said, listing discretion is now advised. As the rain poured down, the serial killer smiled, his face obscured by shadows, looking down at the negotiator and said, But I do believe I'm killing the messenger for. It sends a message. The room grew colder and the tension thickened. The dimly lit basement echoed with the chilling words. The negotiator bound to a rusty chair felt a shiver run down their spine. As the realization set in, this killer was playing a twisted game of cat and mouse. The killer paced back and forth, his eyes gleaming with a sinister intelligence. You see, my dear negotiator, he continued his voice dripping with malevolence. I've always believed in the power of messages. They carry secrets, emotions, and sometimes they seal fates. With each step he took, the negotiator's heart raced faster. They knew they had to buy time to find a way out of this nightmare. What message are you trying to send? They managed to stammer. The killer paused his gloved hands twitching. The message is simple yet profound, he replied, his tone sending shivers down the negotiator's spine. In this world of chaos where messages are lost in the noise, I want to remind people that every word has consequences. The negotiator's mind raced, trying to decipher the meaning behind the cryptic words. They knew they were dealing with a brilliant and deranged mind, one capable of unspeakable horrors. As the tension in the room escalated, the negotiator realized that their only chance of survival lay in unraveling the killer's twisted message and discovering the hidden truth behind his macabre actions. Desperation clawed at the negotiator's thoughts, but they couldn't afford to show weakness. They steadied their voice and asked, what is the message you want people to understand? The killer's smile widened, revealing a glint of madness in his eyes. I want them to understand the fragility of life, he replied. I want them to see that beneath the veneer of civilization, we are all just a step away from chaos, from losing ourselves to our darkest impulses. Every word from the killer deepened the abyss of dread in the room. The negotiator knew they had to keep him talking, to keep his attention away from his sinister plans. Is that why you chose me to be the messenger? They asked, trying to steer the conversation away from the impending danger. The killer nodded slowly, his gaze fixed on the negotiator's eyes as if searching for something. You are the perfect embodiment of this message, he said. A mediator between life and death, between reason and madness. You represent the thin line that separates us from our primal instincts. Time was slipping away, and the negotiator had to find a way to outwit this psychopath and escape. But every step in this deadly dance brought them closer to the edge of darkness. They couldn't help but wonder if they would ever decode the killer's true intentions, or if they would become just another grim statistic in his relentless pursuit of chaos. 
With each passing moment, the tension in the room became almost unbearable. The negotiator knew that they had to act swiftly, or they might not get another chance to escape this nightmare. As they feigned interest in the killer's words, their mind raced, searching for any possible avenue of escape. The ropes that bound them felt impossibly tight, but they had to try. With a quick, unexpected movement, they lunged forward, pushing their chair backward with all their strength. The killer staggered, caught off guard for just a moment. It was all the negotiator needed. They struggled against the restraints, feeling the rough rope cut into their wrists. With determination, they managed to loosen one hand, then the other. Their heart raced as they fought to break free. The killer recovering from the surprise attack lunged forward, but it was too late. The negotiator was on their feet, adrenaline coursing through their veins. They made a dash for the basement door, praying it was unlocked. The door creaked open, revealing a narrow, dimly lit corridor beyond. The negotiator didn't look back. They sprinted down the hallway, fueled by fear and desperation. The killer's voice echoed behind them, a chilling reminder that the game was far from over. The negotiator's only hope now was to escape, to find help, and to ensure that the twisted message of this deranged serial killer was finally brought to an end. But as they ran through the labyrinthine passages of this nightmarish place, they couldn't shake the feeling that the true horrors lay ahead, waiting to be uncovered. Despite the negotiator's desperate attempt to escape, the killer pursued them relentlessly through the labyrinthine corridors. With each passing turn, the darkness seemed to grow denser, and the walls felt as though they were closing in. Panic threatened to overwhelm the negotiator as they realized they were trapped in this nightmarish maze of horrors. The killer's footsteps echoed ominously behind them, getting closer with each passing second. It was clear that this madman knew these passageways intimately, and the negotiator was at a distant disadvantage. Gasping for breath, they pressed on, hoping against hope that they would find an exit. Finally, they reached a dead end, a pitch-black cul-de-sac that offered no escape. Panic set in as they fumbled for their phone, praying for a shred of light to pierce the suffocating darkness. But the killer's hand clamped over his mouth before they could make any sound. The negotiator's heart pounded as they struggled in vain against the killer's iron grip. In the dim light, they saw the glint of a blade, and in that chilling moment, they realized the horrifying truth. There was no escape from this monster. The serial killer smiled once more, his face illuminated by the dim glow of the phone, and whispered, you see, sometimes the messenger must pay the price for the message to be truly understood. And with a swift, merciless motion, the negotiator's life was extinguished, their bodies slumping to the cold, unforgiving floor. The killer's message of chaos and darkness lived on, and another chapter of their gruesome story was written in blood. Doubtless, our stories were what drew him in. This was the first real Halloween after our town lifted the COVID restrictions, and most of us were taking advantage of it. My friends and I were probably a little too old to trick or treat, but it didn't really matter to us. We made some last-minute costumes and went out to join the kids, though I don't think any of them were fooled. We were 13, nearly ready for high school, but they filled our pillowcases nonetheless. Rich from some kind of cowboy, Hank a car wash victim with some red paint and a little makeup, and I had thrown on a long cloak for my older sister's costume trunk and some fake vampire teeth to make me look particularly ghoulish, and the three of us had hit the street. The candy was secondary anyway, and we all knew it. Halloween fell on a Friday this year, you see. That meant that we could go eat our candy at the fire pit once we were done, 
and our parents probably wouldn't expect us home till late. The fire pit was a common spot for us to go when the weather was good. We would light a fire and tell ghost stories around it, usually roasting marshmallows or hot dogs to go along with the tales. It was something we looked forward to, and it wasn't something we had got to do in a while. So, with our parents' blessing, we put our pillowcases over our shoulders and stalked into the woods that surrounded the cul-de-sac we all lived in. The rains had been light this year, and after collecting up some branches and getting a fire going, we set about starting our stories as the round Halloween moon hung overhead. Rich had just begun a story about a group of kids camping in the woods on Halloween when he suddenly stopped and squinted into the trees. What? asked Hank, clearly smelling mischief as he tossed the stick off a blow pop into the fire. I could have sworn I saw something, Rich said. Like fairy fire or something. I turned to look, thinking he was building tension for his story when I saw it too. It was like dancing candles, the shapes bouncing and jouncing in the dark, and the closer it came, the easier it was to recognize. It was too cohesive to be fireflies, and too consistent to be anything but what it was. The closer it came, the more I could make out the familiar shapes of a jack-o'-lantern, though the realization did little to put me at ease. Unless it was being carried by a ghost, then someone had to be holding it, and the idea of some random person wandering in the woods at night was a little off-putting, all on its own. The owner of the pumpkin turned out to be an old tramp who smelled as if he had bathed in cheap liquor. He came swaying out of the woods, singing a slurry song as he came, and we all hunched a little as we hoped he would pass us by. The call of the fire turned out to be a little too much for him, though, and I caught the last refrains of his song as he crunched into the clearing. And Stinky Ray Jack was turned away for nary heaven or hell did want him. But Satan led a friendly face, so a smile would go afore him. He sang out the last line as he came to the fire, plopping down on a log as if he had been left there for him. He was dressed in shabby cast-off clothes, the pants cuffs full of cockleburs and the shirt covered in stains. His burnt orange hair had grown into his beard, and it was hard to see much of his face through the tangle. He set the jack-o'-lantern in his lap, the gourd having a handle through it, and nodded at the three of us as we stare mistrustfully at him. A fine evening to ye all. Didn't mean to startle ye. I thought this fire might be unoccupied, but I see I was mistaken. You wouldn't mind sharing a tale or two with old Jackie now, would ya? His accent was very thick, thicker than I'd ever heard in my whole life and the three of us just stared at each other before shrugging. There didn't seem to be any harm in the old fellow, and maybe he had a tale or two to tell as well. It was kind of novel to have someone else who might tell a story, and we told him he was welcome to listen if he wanted. I think, even then, I had started to put two and two together. Something about the song and the pumpkin he carried had scratched at something I hadn't thought about in a while. Rich continued his story about the three kids camping on Halloween and how the mysterious whistler who tormented them had finally driven them crazy. Rich even whistled a little in a few parts and we were all pretty spooked by the end. I cast a glance at our stowaway, but he was just sat placidly on his stump with his beetle black eyes twinkling in the tangle of his beard and his pumpkin winking in the slight breeze. A fine story, he said across the fire at the rest of us. Anyone else got a good tale? Nothing I like more on Halloween than a good yarn. Hank tossed the Jolly Rancher into his mouth and around the slight lisp of the dissolving candy against his cheek, he told a story about a kid who hated jack-o'-lanterns. As Hank's story went on, 
I found my eyes glued to the old fella as his smiling eyes took a distinctly downward cast. He clutched his pumpkin tightly as Hank talked about how the boys had smashed them, all in the service of the green man, and he didn't seem to care for that much. I suddenly wondered how long he'd been toting that pumpkin, and whether it was an actual gourd or some kind of prop. His bearded face twitched when Hank mentioned the green man, and I began to wonder if it was a legend he was aware of. Rich did a little golf clap as Hank finished, but the old vag was still clutching at his pumpkin like we might try to steal it. This green mine, have you seen him around these parts? Hank laughed. <laughs> of course not, sir. It's just a story. Nobody really believes in the green man. He's just a legend we tell to scare each other. The old man nodded at Hank, but to me it looked condescending. It was the same look that little kids gave you when you tried to tell them there was no Santa Claus. It was a look that said, Sure, that's what you say, but we know better, don't we? He loosened his grip on his gourd, turning to me as if to ask if I had a story for him too. Um, I guess I do, I said. Though, it's not a very scary story. <sniffs> Rich said. Then what kind of story is it? We all told spooky ones, so this one better be something awesome if it isn't scary. The old man was looking at me with interest, as if he knew exactly what I might tell and was excited to hear it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's an old story that my grand told me when I was little. She used to tell it to me while we were carving pumpkins, and it's supposed to be from the old times. It's about a man named Stingy Jack and how he is the reason for jack-o'-lanterns. Rich rolled his eyes, but one look at the old fella showed me that I had his undivided attention. It's also about how he tricked the devil not once, but twice. That had his attention, and Rich leaned back as he looked over, nodding for me to continue. The old man was nodding too, and I smiled as I started my story. Stingy Jack was supposed to be one of the most skinned flint drunks in the village he lived in. He never bought new clothes, he didn't take care of his property, and he was a sought drunk every day, including Sunday. He was not held in high regard by the townspeople. But, as little they liked him, no one could argue that Jack was clever. He never wanted for whiskey or money, and his deals and bets often set him against the townspeople. It was widely believed that one day he would come to a sticky end, and one day his reputation caught up with him. You see, the devil had heard of his cleverness and how his trickery might rival even his own. So he came to earth to try and weasel the old drunk out of his soul so he could claim his cleverness for his own. Jack was sleeping beneath an old tree when the devil appeared before him, and even half asleep, he was formidable. He begged the devil to grant him one request before he took him to the underworld. And when the old imp asked what it was, he said he wanted one last drink at the local tavern. My friends were listening, but it was more out of polite interest. This story has no monsters or murderers or any of the usual scary story fare, and they were getting a little bored with my grandma's Irish folktales. They, however, were not the ones I had been targeting with this tale. The old man was leaning forward on his log and was close enough that I had worried his beard might catch a light. Well... One drink became two, and two became too many, and soon the devil was well and truly drunk. So when Jack passed him the bill, the devil was confused. What use do denizens of hell have for money? He asked. 
the barman standing back in fear as the old demon raged. Jack, however, had an answer. Why not turn yourself into a gold piece? Then we can be paying this one in full, and ye can be taking me on to the fiery underworld. So, the devil did just that. He turned himself into a fat gold piece, but before the barman could scoop it up, Jack had popped it into his pocket right next to his mother's rosary. The devil writhed and begged, wanting to be free of this prison, but Jack told him that he wouldn't let him go, unless he promised to spare his soul for another ten years. The devil agreed to this deal hastily, and Jack took the coin and tossed it from him as far as he could. The devil had been bested, but he didn't fret. What was ten years to him after all? He could wait on Jack's soul a little longer, and he returned to hell to wait for the deal to be over. I didn't bother to look at my friends, but had eyes only for the strange old man. He was the best audience I'd ever had, looking intently at me as Grand's tail unwound like old soft yarn. So, ten years went by, and the devil returned to, once again, collect Jack's soul. He found him sleeping beneath the same tree, having aged not a day from the last time he'd seen him. He told Jack that today he would repay his debt, but ten years had done nothing to dole Jack's cleverness. He begged the devil once again for a single boon before he took him to hell, an apple from the tastiest tree for his final meal. Well, Satan was hesitant, to say the least, but he could find no trap here, and so he climbed the tree to get the apple. It was late season, however, and the only remaining apples were at the very top. As he climbed up the old, thick branches, this gave Jack plenty of time to carve a cross at the bottom of the tree, trapping him up in the bows. The devil cursed and railed at the man, begged and pleaded, and finally offered him riches beyond measure. Jack, however, only wanted one thing. I paused, letting the suspense draw out a little though I suspected it was just for the haggard old man. He wanted to never again be bothered by the fallen angel or any of his ilk, and to never be in danger of his soul going to hell again. The devil again railed and threatened, begged and pleaded. But in the end, he surrendered and gave the old man what he wanted. He went back to hell the loser in yet another exchange. But Jack's victory and his luck was not to last. The old man sat back a little, clearly not looking forward to the rest of the story. He liked tales of cleverness all well and good, but it appeared this part might be a sore subject for him. I suspected even more now that I knew what had brought him to our fire, and it was something else that Gran had told me on the porch when I was just a tyke. He was not a young man, and when he died of natural causes not long after, there was the question of where he would go. He could not go to heaven, for he had not lived a godly life, but he could not go to hell either, because of the deal he had made. So, Jack was forced to walk the earth, but the devil gave him something to remember him by. He gifted him a coal of hellfire and a gourd to carry it in. So, Stingy Jack walks the earth for all time with that gourd to light his way and the face it carries has become the pumpkin that we all carve to ward away the devil should he come to our homes some Halloween night. There was silence after the story ended, and the wind rustled the leaves as we all sat watching the homeless man. He sat like a statue, grinning behind his beard, as the pumpkin flickered ghoulishly. Were the flames a little bit green? They might have been, but I couldn't be sure. The leaves made a skeletal sound in the wind, and as a knot popped into the fire, it brought us all back to our senses. Uh, not a real scary story, Rich said, but it was interesting. How about you, sir? You got any stories you... But he stopped as he looked dumbfounded at the place where the old man had been. The log was empty, save for a pumpkin sitting on it. I kept that pumpkin, taking it home and keeping it well past the Halloween season. It burns in my windowsill now, and the ghostly glow casts long shadows up my walls. I don't know why I told that story. It was one I hadn't thought of in years, but it seemed fitting. Somehow, and I don't know how, 
I think I knew who it was that sat by my fire that night and decided to remind him that there are people who remember him. My grand certainly did, often telling the story when I was a kid, and Stingy Jack was one of her favorite stories to tell us as we gathered around the fire for a tale. She always told us that, if we should see him around our fire, that it was best to flatter creatures of the hereafter a little so they wouldn't haunt us for long. Watching the ghostly flames dance on the wall as I write this, I guess he was pleased. It wasn't so difficult, was it? Your wish has been granted, and you are now able to live as you see fit. Of course, this ritual has been of no small cost to myself, so I'll be leaving you this handy note to explain all of the new stipulations I've added to cover the cost and how to avoid them. Day rolls. You should be safe enough during the day. None of the friends I borrowed from are brave enough to come out while the sun is on the horizon, so you should be fine. Rule number one, try to stay in groups of three or more. While they prefer to come out at night, that doesn't mean they can't come out during the day. Rule number one A, occasionally, anybody you know and are close with can become compromised. This isn't a major issue, but you do need to know how to deal with it. Look for any deformities that wouldn't necessarily be obvious at first glance, such as new jewelry or an eye color change. Rule number 1B. If you notice a friend has potentially been replaced, you need not worry. Simply separate that person as soon as reasonably possible and return home. They will not harm you in the presence of others, but staying near them will make it easier for them to track you. When you get home, lock all your doors and go to your room for the remainder of the day and leave as little as possible. Rule number two, don't gamble or play any games that have the potential for gambling. It may remind them of what I've, uh, excuse me, you've taken from them. Rule number three, stay cautious, use common sense, and be aware. These are the most common scenarios, but they aren't the only possible occurrences. I can't cover everything, so if something seems suspicious, stay away from it. Night Rules Generally speaking, the lack of light makes it easier for any bad actors to cross over to the mortal plane. Apply any rules from the daytime set to be safe. Rule number one, between the hours of 3 a.m. to 3.59 a.m., you will sacrifice any warm-blooded, medium-sized, or above creature to me at least once a month. Although I wouldn't mind more. Replenishing my power after such a deal won't be easy, after all. Rule number two. Starting at roughly 12 a.m. and ending at around 7 a.m., it is very important that you block off all entrances to the room that you are sleeping in. As such, it is recommended that you avoid rooms without doors. Rule number three. Use a large weighted blanket when you sleep. Occasionally, a gust of wind may be sent through your room. The thing creating the wind is something that you really want to stay away from. Due to the limited connection to your world, without a direct line of sight, it is near impossible for it to notice you. Rule number four, ignore whispering that doesn't belong to you, especially if it mentions anything of an unpaid debt. They are searching for you, and even acknowledging the sound they make can be dangerous. Rule number five, Nobody should ever appear at your house at any time, for any reason, asking for me by name. If this does happen, it doesn't particularly matter if you open the door or not. You do not have long to act. Lock everything in your house that can be locked. This should clearly signal that they are not invited or welcomed. Now pray that they accept your rude dismissal. Rule number six, keep all religious paraphernalia out of your house. I like to watch you struggle. <laughs> oh, admittedly, I did use outside forces to gain the power to grant you the wish. And admittedly, I wasn't necessarily given permission to use said power. But 
What did you expect? You made a deal with a demon. <laughs> I do need to pay off my debt, unfortunately, and your soul is the easiest way. I now own it, as discussed, and the minute you pass, I am in the clear. Make no mistake, I only created this list out of obligation. You will die, and you will die soon. And when you do, I will be there to claim my prize. <laughs> Chattering about weekend plans filled the humid air around me. A boat trip down the local national park, practice for a big football game, a date with their big crush. The list just keeps on expanding. People leaning over their backrests and across the aisle in between the bus seats. All in all, an almost comedically lighthearted atmosphere. Well, for everyone else. I sat there with my eyes glued to the window pretending to listen to my boyfriend, getting all excited about the new game he was going to play. After we got home today. Just one more block and I would be able to see it. Not unlike an addict seeing their dealer sell them their next dose, I gasped as the object of my obsession forced its way into my field of view. House number 04 on Holloway Row. A normal house every way you looked at it, with its two stories, an open window with flowers on the windowsill, haloed by long, orderly strands of ivy, a neat-kept lawn and a pathway so straight you might feel insecure. One couldn't be blamed if they felt suffocated by number 04's aggressive normalcy. That is, except one very problematic detail. A perpetually open front door, creeping up on me whenever I do not keep myself busy with other matters, stalking me through the landscapes of my fantasy. Regardless of whether I dream about my future with my love or the perils of my work life, Eventually, I will round a corner, turn over a new page in a document, or open a drawer and find myself in front of the door. It beckons me like a siren with its song, almost as if it was telling me that it stood open just for me, an invitation that I had no choice but to answer with my presence. Honey, are you all right? I gotta get off at the next stop. Don't let me go without a kiss. Oh, God. He has to get off already? Considering the distance between 04 and his stop, I might have lost 20 minutes, rambling to myself again. Feeling bad, I gave him a long and intense kiss and told him to swing by mine tomorrow. The time between getting home and the approach of nightfall, when I would make my move, felt excruciatingly sluggish. As if the minutes had to wade through molasses to make their way around the clock. In the end, I managed to fill my time with preparations for my mission, and before I knew it, I was standing at the beginning of the pathway without any bends. My goal was finally in front of me, with all that separated us being a step forward into the dimly lit hallway. I've spent a lot of time mulling over how I feel when it finally happened, a part of me hoping that it would just turn out to be a silly boogeyman my mind had just made up. I wished it was that way, that I could have just turned and walked away. Zero four shattered every expectation I could have ever formed in my tiny obsessive brain. The vortex of temptation and terrified curiosity that had been keeping me fixated on coming here was replaced by a hypnotic sensation. At that very moment, when I was confronted by this gateway into my very own abyss, all my desires wishes, and dreams about my future were hunted down and bored by the pressing need to enter. This was laughable. I must have been standing there for God knows how long. I finally gathered my courage and stepped forward. Immediately, I was taken aback by a change in the air. No longer was I surrounded by the chilly summer night. No, almost as if I walked into a cloud of perfume. The air became more dense and heavy. The hallway itself was about 12 feet long with a coat hanger above a small table on the left and a mirror on the right. 
Turning toward the clothing, I noticed quickly that not two of these pieces could belong to the same person. Sizes mixed and matched completely different styles. The dust layers on them get thicker the closer you got to the wall. Underneath on the small table was a bowl with an impressive assortment of keys. Deciding that it was time to leave the floor behind me, the singular door was my only option. Suddenly ajar and underlined by a halo of warm light. Cautiously, with my ear pressed against the door, I began pushing it open using the tips of my fingers. The living area that I entered sent every alarm bell in me into a red alert. My eyes first made their way to a large dinner table, and the plates were upside down. Next, a sofa right behind the dining table, facing toward a TV and shelf. The shelf, however, was not only empty, but pushed halfway in front of the TV. Whatever lived here tried its absolute hardest to make it look like a human dwelled within these walls, but didn't quite get it right. Hello, dear visitor. How nice of you to come by just when dinner is ready. I spun around while falling backward at the same time. The floor knocked the wind clean out of me, but that didn't matter at that moment. All to get away from that voice without any form of intonation or rhythm to its speech. Just like the living area, every bit of that sentence was uttered with the intent of sounding human, but it felt at the last step. Like a milkman falling on the porch in front of a home shattering the bottles seconds before they could be delivered. Oh, so close to success, yet impossibly far away at the same time. With my back to the now closed door, I raised my gaze at the perceived threat. A woman, small in her stature, doll-like in her appearance. Her skin was spotless, not a single crease or beauty mark dared disturb its perfection. Her smile was way too wide to be acceptable, her dress neat and creaseless. Oh God, and her eyes, looking at, yet straight past me, devoid of any shimmer, dead like glass pearls. It probably noticed that its disguise did not do the trick, so it walked over to the light switch and flipped it. Panicking and still out of breath, I scrambled to my feet, trying to regain control over my hands enough so that opening the door was not an impossible task anymore. Meanwhile, the dark room was filled with the sound of tearing skin. Soggy, slapping echo through the void, creating a gut-wrenching melody as whatever it was climbed out of its faulty disguise. Finally, the door gave way and I stumbled into the hallway. Just that it wasn't twelve feet long anymore. What was a dimly but still lit short stretch before seemed like a dark void now. Out of other options, I booked it towards the speck of light that shimmered far off into the distance. Tremors caused by huge feet filled the space behind me as they kept gaining distance from me. Enclosed by the walls in darkness, I no longer felt like I was in a house getting chased by a monster, but more akin to a fool stuck in a train tunnel at the wrong time with inevitable death right behind me in the form of a cold, still giant. With a final desperate jump, I hit the gravel ground in front of the door. Only moving inches at a time, I dragged myself away from Zero Four's voracious maw, not paying any attention to my nails breaking and splitting. My skin gave way to rough stones and dirt filled my mouth, but... My fear did not allow me to stop, feeling like I was far enough away after what felt like an eternity of slithering on the ground. I felt like a piece of raw meat. I needed to see how far away I was. Mustering my last bit of strength, I risked a look over my shoulder and saw the house's closed door not even three feet behind me. The distance I covered was less than a foot. Hope took my last bit of energy with it. When it left my body, I passed out then and there. I've always had a morbid curiosity, from true crime podcasts to documentaries to books and spending hours online looking up killers both infamous and obscure. In fact, when I was in the fifth grade, 
my parents had to come in and talk to the teacher when I told the class about the body farms the FBI uses to teach future agents to identify how long corpses have been dead for. I devoured this kind of stuff and still do, but it wasn't until I met Matt, my roommate at college, that this hobby was taken up a notch. Like me, Matt was into the same things, only his parents were rich and gave him money so he could go on what he called death tours, where he could go see where murderers lived, where they worked, and even to the site of their grisly murders. And, since I was his friend and into the same things as he was, he would pay for my ticket and bring me along. The first place we went was where H.H. H. Holmes' murder castle once stood. Since it was no longer there, we both thought that this was a bit of a letdown. A shame, too, because he was my favorite serial killer. Lots of people look at me odd for claiming I had a favorite serial killer, or when I explain that I love true crime in all its gory details. It's not like I am dangerous or anything. I just want to know how someone could go ahead and actually kill someone. Everyone has thought about it, but to actually go ahead and do it is, well, that's what I find fascinating. The summer break before our senior year, we decided to take off to Arizona to explore where Mateo Salazar hunted for nearly 20 years before he was caught and executed. Matt suggested this destination. I didn't know who Matt Salazar was, so Matt showed me his stats, all the people he killed, how long he was active, etc. His crimes were so gruesome that I was surprised that I had never heard of him. He would abduct people give them strange tattoos before skinning them alive, and then kill them. No one knows why he skinned people he forced tattoos on, but it's suspected that it was part of a strange and twisted religious ritual. Also, the exact number of people he murdered is a topic of contention, but is anywhere between 35 and 50. Shortly after he was caught, the area he hunted in became a ghost town. Not just because no one wants to live in a place where that many murders happened, but because it was so isolated that there were no jobs to keep people around. Since then, it became a sort of grim tourist attraction dedicated to the man who killed so many. When we got there, I expected to see a tour guide, but other than the dust being kicked up by the wind in the abandoned buildings, there was very little to see. I would have thought that there would have been at least someone in the gift shop, the former post office, but that too was empty. Most of the things in the small and dust-covered gift shop were knickknacks and not interesting to either Matt or I. However, there was one thing that caused a cold shiver to creep up my spine. Under a glass counter was Mateo Salazar's death mask, taken shortly after his execution. Beneath it were the last words he spoke, and when I read them, it sounded more like a curse. My work is not finished. It will never be finished. I'll be back. Matt wasn't bothered by this, but for some reason I can't articulate. I was. I had to leave, but instead of telling Matt the mask made me feel uneasy, he would have relentlessly teased me if I did. I told him I was going off to explore, which was true. All over town there were plaques. Some gave a brief history of a building, and others were about the people who either lived or worked there. Most of them were either Salazar's victims or friends who were oblivious to the horrible things he did when he was alive. Like always, I took tons of pictures while Matt ran off to do his own thing. In hindsight, I wished I had followed him around. Maybe things would have been different if I had. After a few hours had passed, I realized that I hadn't seen him around for a long time. It wasn't like the town was large enough to get lost in. In an hour, I had been down every major road, and after two hours, I saw mostly everything the town had to offer, yet there was no sign of Matt or anyone else. I wondered if this was one of his tricks like he was going to jump out and try to scare me or something. If you knew Matt, you should know that this wouldn't have been a surprise. 
However, if he was going to jump out and scare me, he was displaying an uncharacteristically amount of patience because I hadn't seen any sign of him since leaving the gift shop. I called out to Matt after seeing all I could in that ghost town, but there was no reply. It's hard to explain how it felt having an entire town to myself. The best word I can come up with is eerie, but that still falls short. Thankfully, Matt didn't jump out to scare me, but the look on his face hinted that he did something he shouldn't have done. But I was too tired and cranky from walking all day to ask him about it. Driving back to the hotel, Matt asked me what I thought of the town, and I told him that I was sort of let down by it. I was hoping that there was more to see, at least a tour guide that could have told us what the internet couldn't. I assumed that Matt would have been disappointed with my opinion, but it didn't bother him. After a long moment, I turned to look at him and saw a smile that did little to hide some mischievous deed. I asked what he did, but instead of answering, he said he would rather show me when we get back to the hotel, and I knew I wasn't going to like what he would say. Back at the hotel, he opened up the backpack he had with him all day and showed me the death mask of Mateo Salazar he had stolen from the gift shop. With a smile, he said he was going to hang it up on the wall back at the dorm. Needless to say, I was upset about this, even more so when he said it was alright because he looked and there were no cameras, as if I was mad that he might get caught and not because he stole something. I was tired and didn't want to fight. It wasn't like it would have done either of us any favors if I did, so I decided to drink at the hotel bar for the remainder of the night. When we got back to the dorms, Matt stayed true to his word and hung up the death mask on the living room wall. There, it served as an interesting conversation piece when we had guests. It didn't take long before our guests claimed that they were getting a weird feeling from it. When asked about it, they said it wasn't so much as the feeling of being watched, which was also the case, but more like it was radiating evil. At first, we considered this nonsense. No one had that feeling before we told them about its origins, so we chalked it up as the placebo effect. In truth, though, sometimes it gave me the creeps. I, too, would get the feeling of someone watching me when I was alone. In the weeks that followed, I would be doing something for class, reading a book or researching something online, and in the corner of my eye, I could have sworn that its eyes were open. However... Every time I looked, its eyes were shut. I told myself it was the trick of the light, my imagination, or that I should take it easy with the edibles. However, none of that explained how Matt's behavior changed. He started missing classes. He stayed out all night and hardly spoke to me. I should have done something, but at the time, the only thing I could think of was talking to his parents. Sometimes, when he thought I was asleep in my room... I could hear Matt talking to himself. One night I spied on him and discovered that he was actually talking to the death mask. I needed a break from this and decided to go to a party. I didn't go with Matt, not because of how much he changed, but because parties were never his scene. So I was a little surprised to see him standing in the corner looking at everyone at the party. The way he was looking at people wasn't like his usual self. It wasn't like he was trying to build up the nerve to talk to a girl that caught his eye. It reminded me of the way a reptile looked at something, hold and unfeeling eyes calculating to decide if it was worth the effort to go after. Coming up with an excuse not to return to the dorm room was a no-brainer. I needed a break from Matt, so that night I slept at my girlfriend's house. The next morning, I was reluctant to return. But when I did, I saw police cars in the parking lot and on the grass next to the doors. People were crying and holding each other. When I asked what happened, they told me my roommate killed a girl while I was gone. I refused to believe it, but then someone showed me a video on their phone of the police frog marching Matt out of the dorms as he was laughing. The police interviewed me and I cooperated to the best of my ability. They didn't ask me about Mateo Salazar's death mask, so I never mentioned it. 
After a few hours of interrogation, I was free to go, but was warned not to leave town. The people in the dorms treated me like a leper and kept away from me. Not surprising, after all, it wasn't a secret that the two of us had the same interests, and it was only natural to assume that I was involved with the murders too. The details of Matt's crimes came out over the next few days, and to me, they sounded exactly like Mateo Salazar's. He abducted three people, two girls and a guy, and killed them. Rumor was he also gave them tattoos and skinned them. I couldn't help but to think of Salazar's death mask. If I wasn't already freaked out by it, hearing the details of Matt's crimes was the straw that broke the camel's back, and I decided to get rid of it. However, before I could throw it in the trash, someone knocked on the door. When I entered it, I was surprised and confused to see two people who didn't look like they were police or FBI. Not only were they hairless, but they also had bright orange coveralls. After asking who they were and what they wanted, the shorter of the two answered in a monotone voice and said they just wanted the mask. I would have given it to them for free, but they pulled out a checkbook and asked me to name my price. When I said the number, I thought they would haggle me, but they didn't blink and wrote out the check. Surprised at this sudden windfall of money, I didn't say or do anything to stop them when they let themselves in and took the mask off the wall. They left without a word after taking the mask, and I watched them depart down the hallway. On the back of their coveralls was the same name on the check, the Catadesmos Museum. I quickly woke up. A pull of sweat formed in my pillow. I needed to go to the bathroom, and quick. I got up and reached over to my left, grabbing my blue crescent moon-shaped nightlight. I flipped the old plastic switch. Nothing. I flipped it again, hoping that it would light up with its usual dim illumination. I flipped it again and again, fiddling with it until I could muster up the courage to get out of my bed. I sighed, knowing that this would be a huge pain. Getting out of bed, I rested my feet on the old, dusty wooden floorboards that made a horrible screeching, creaking sound whenever I took a step. I took a step forward, reaching out with my hands like a zombie to see if anything was in my way. I took a step forward every five seconds. I didn't want to fall. However, it wasn't like I wanted to take my time. I had extreme nyctophobia and felt like my heart was about to jump right off my chest. I slowly reached to my door where I slowly opened it, making as little noise as possible. One step forward at a time, I managed to make it to the stairs. Some sweat trickled down my weak body as I took a step down. More and more scared, I tried to reconsider even going to the bathroom. But what's the worst that could possibly happen? It's not like the dark is going to lunge towards me and kill me. Could it? I shook my head and continued my journey down. The house I had lived in was old but cheap, which meant that my family couldn't pass up the offer. I had heard rumors about somebody that disappeared in the house, but I never really believed them. But there are times like these when my brain goes into fight-or-flight mode, and I really thought about it. It couldn't possibly be true, could it? I had always turned on my nightlight before sleeping, and I always changed the batteries every single fortnight. Why did this have to happen to me? I had finally reached the end of the staircase, one arm using the old rotten wooden handrail and the other one forward before going back to my original zombie-like position with hunched back and an emotionless face yet full of fear on the inside. I turned to my right and stretched out to the closet door near me. My side, as I could finally turn on the light in the bathroom. I opened the door. Not a pin drop could be heard. I closed the door behind me and tried turning the lights on. Nothing. I grunted, not in frustration, but in fear. I gulped and took a step forward but my foot didn't touch the floor. It touched the carpet, 
Only that the house never had any. My heart dropped and my sunken, tired eyes widened. I swooped backwards where I came from, but this time there was no door, no switch. I frantically searched for the handle on the door, patting the wall over and over, hoping that the handle would appear again, the same way it disappeared, and the same way I had flipped the switch again, hoping that something would happen. I had no other choice but to continue walking forward in complete darkness and see where it would take me. My arms reached up once again, and I started taking more and more slow steps towards my fate. The carpet had a moist texture, like fresh moss on a rock. My thoughts were racing across my mind, my emotions like doubt, fear, and resignation. But some hope still remained with me until I heard a noise. It was from across the infinity-seeming room. I heard a low, long growl that sounded like a grunt. I couldn't take it anymore. I started jogging, then sprinting, but still with my arms in front of me, just in case. But that didn't matter. I ran into the wall, colliding headfirst into the barrier of my escape. If I even could. The growling went louder and louder, moving closer to me. I knew that on this day, it would be the last one where I am breathing and well. Maybe the person before me went through this as well. And hopefully the person that is going to go through this after me puts an end to it. To everything, the growling went louder and louder again. On that day, I turned to face the monster, ready for the sacrifice I was going to make. Finally, I confronted the beast, and amidst the darkness, my light shone brighter. Death never scared me. It was fate after all. Goodbye. Being deep in the woods all alone was no place for a child. But alas, Little Red had found herself lost, with night quickly approaching. Red knew of the things that wandered among the trees after the moon came out to play. Her grandmother had told her all the stories about the things that go bump in the woods, things that snatch wandering children. A lot of kids go missing in those woods, her grandmother would always say. Her eyes desperately darted the rows and rows of similar-looking trees, only disorienting herself even more. Very soon, she wouldn't be able to see anything at all. I should have listened, my grandma. The thought of being in the woods when darkness came terrified her. She had no light source, no means of starting a fire. She was starting to shiver from the cold breeze, working its way through the trees with an almost howling sound that, to Little Red's ears, was like the wails of the damned. It left her feeling more anxious than before. Am I ever going to see Grandma again? She dropped to the floor and broke down into tears. I'm going to die in these woods. It wasn't long before the darkness came, enveloping the woods in a shadowy veil, taking both her sight and sense of safety. A slight trickle of rain had started to fall. Red looked up to see dark clouds looming above, promising a downpour. She pulled her crimson hood up over her head and curled up under a tree, feeling defeated. It's funny how the woods seem to take on a creepier atmosphere at night. Every slight crunch of leaves causing her to jump from her skin, or the bone-chilling howl of a wolf somewhere far off, she hoped in the distance. Just as Red found herself about to doze off, she heard something. Not an animal, but a voice. That sounded like Grandma. She stood up and listened more closely. The voice, which was unmistakably that of her beloved Grandma, still called out from the darkness. Little Red, Little Red, where are you? I'm over here, Grandma. Red shouted as loud as her lungs would allow. Suddenly, everything went quiet. Too quiet. No owls hooting or insects creaking. The rain had even stopped abruptly. The only sound was that of something big moving through the trees. 
heavy footsteps pounding the ground, vibrating the earth beneath her feet, each step seeming much closer than the last. Grandma? She whimpered. No, not Grandma. Only darkness. The trees began to part, opening up to reveal a monstrosity of incomprehensible proportions. A giant shadowy being with many small outreaching arms that desperately flailed from the void of its abdomen. Red was frozen with fear. She knew that they were the arms of children. She knew because she could hear their muffled cries for help. The abomination spoke once again in her grandmother's voice. A lot of kids go missing in the woods. <laughs> and that, dear listeners, is the end of Friday the 13th, Part 2. I hope you're ready for Part 3. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you comfortably. If you're awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection of stories. Until next time, please take care of yourself. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or good evening. Peace, love, and light to you all.
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.